Our Bible reading this morning is from Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. <coughs> Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lois. Uh, as John and I have already mentioned, we are starting a new series looking at the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and our hope is, as you've seen from our hopefully engaging quiz uh, with Bridget, that you will see Jesus more clearly as we look at this wonderful story of this person, Jesus Christ, who radically transforms those he meets and declares that his kingdom is for all people. Uh, and as we look at it together, my hope is, particularly today, that we'll start to unpack what it means to have Jesus as a king and what his kingdom means, because this is what the Mark, uh, Mark's gospel starts with. Now, we know a little bit about the, the author, uh, John Mark. 
Uh, he was a companion of Peter. Uh, in fact, Peter is mentioned more often than any other disciple, and almost always he's in every scene. Uh, Mark was probably one of uh, secretary, they think, uh, of Peter. And the gospel itself dates from around about 50 to 60 AD, uh, which makes it one of the earliest gospels. And a few people ask me how long have the words been up in the church at the back as you came in. You may have noticed some words from Mark's gospel. said, oh, they've been there for about 2,000 years. And Mark's biography of Jesus is not written in an abstract or, or dense theological or philosophical way. Uh, it is a really action-packed, hard-hitting, punchy, fast-paced style. If Twitter or X, whatever it's called these days, was invented back then, it's the kind of, the kind of gospel you could tweet in discreet, short and punchy units. And Mark does this for a very specific reason. What he wants to do is, again and again and again, draw your eyes back to the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the person of Jesus, until it's impossible to be neutral about Jesus. He wants you to, to kind of action-packedly show you so much about Jesus that you're forced to make a decision about who he is and how you respond. You have to respond to Jesus. This is Mark's big point. You have to respond to who he is and his mission on the cross. You can't just be neutral after you've read Mark's gospel. He won't allow it. And so we're going to look at this gospel afresh. Now, Mark begins his gospel with some actually extremely dangerous and rebellious words. I wonder if you noticed them as we started the reading, just how outrageous they were. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Radical words. Because they were an overt challenge to the supreme authority in Jesus' day, Caesar. There's a Roman inscription they found from about the same time as Mark is writing his gospel that says these words, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the divine son of God. Okay, now we see why Mark's words are so provocative. He's saying, forget Caesar. Jesus actually is the one who is the Son of God, whose gospel you need to hear. And that word gospel, the way, we, we kind of use that word in lots of different ways from a music style. Uh, what it means literally is a news, a proclamation that should be celebrated. A proclamation that should be celebrated. It's good news, but it kind of, it's more than just, oh, some good news today, my football team won. No, it's, it's kind of like the end of a war. Peace has broken out. It's life-changing news. And so this gospel is an announcement that something momentous has happened in human history. Something worth declaring to the world something that has the potential to change your life. In other words, Mark is telling us from the beginning, this is something that we need to listen to. This is not just a little bit of information. This is a proclamation that changes lives. And we'll see there are three main things he introduces as he starts this gospel, this proclamation which brings joy. 
And the first thing is we learn about a king. The gospel is about a king. Jesus is called the Messiah or the Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Messiah. And that's um, not his last name, as people sometimes think. It's a title. Uh, the word Christ is the Greek word. The word Messiah is the Hebrew word. And it means God's royal appointed person or king. Uh, there was a promise all the way through the Old Testament that God would send this promised king who would rule over his kingdom and rule over the earth. Someone who would rescue God's people, Israel, from all its enemies and troubles. And so the Israelites were hoping, putting all their hope in this promised king. But notice too how Mark heats it up a bit more. He ups the ante. Jesus is not just the Christ, the Messiah. He's the son of God. That's a very audacious claim to start his gospel with right at the beginning. He's not just a Messiah, which is what people's expectation was. No, he is actually divine. He is the son of God. And to make this point even stronger, he quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for who? The Lord. Make straight paths for him. And in the very next section, we meet an, another John. This is really a, if you're John, this is your morning. The one, John the Baptist, who prepares the way for the Lord. Mark is clearly telling us here that Jesus is not just divine in some vague, gaudy type sense. No, Jesus is the Lord himself. He is the Almighty. In other words, the long-awaited king who would rescue God's people and the Lord God are somehow going to be one in the same person. And it reminds us too, Jesus doesn't just kind of arrive out of nowhere. Surprise! Jesus is here, obviously, the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies and promises. The king that was being promised has arrived. And guess what? That king is God himself. And having announced that Jesus is king, Mark tells us about Jesus' baptism, which tells us, as you'll see, more about who Jesus is. <clears throat> At verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Jordan, by the way, is, it makes the Yarra look clean and big. <laughs> but it was a common thing for Jewish people to actually be baptized. Now, the question is, of course, why was Jesus baptized? Have you thought about that question? What, what was the purpose in him being baptized? In the Christian faith, of course, baptism is a sign of, of God washing away our sins, of us dying with Christ and being raised to new life. But isn't Jesus sinless? So why does he need baptism? 
And the answer is, as we look at his baptism in more detail, we see there are quite a few quite profound things going on in this moment. Firstly, it's actually about Jesus identifying with us. Uh, If you know the story of God's people, you'll notice that part of their rescue from being slaves in Egypt is passing through the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea, as we sometimes refer to it. That is, through the water, God's people are rescued. And so Jesus is identifying with God's people. He is Israel's greater son. He is the symbolic symbol of uh, of all of God's people together. Secondly, uh, there's an element of sanctification. What I mean by that is... uh, Sanctification is about being set apart for a special purpose. And washing in the Jewish culture was a sign of that. And here is Jesus being set apart for a special service by God the Father. And thirdly, I think, and most profoundly, it's actually telling us something about the triune God. Something radically different happens at Jesus' baptism that has never happened at any baptism that I've been to or done. Did you notice that in verse 10 and 11? Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descend on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love With you, I am well pleased. And often we have that dove symbolised in Christian artwork uh, and in stained glass windows. Uh, What I discovered this week is doves are just pigeons. No difference. You go into the city and see all those pigeons crapping on statues. They're just ugly doves. That's all it is. It's a nice way of saying pretty pigeon. But why does, why, does this, why does Mark choose that language of a pigeon, a dove? Well, what's happening in this moment is we're actually being drawn back to the very creation of this universe. In Genesis 1 verse 2, what we read is that God's spirit hovers over the face of the waters. And then God speaks and says, let there be light. That's that Genesis moment. And that word for hover, literally in the original language, means fluttered, flapped. And it's often translated like the fluttering of a dove's wings. And so therefore, the the dove particularly, that's a prettier version of a pigeon, has become a symbol of God's spirit. So in Genesis, we have three parties, three, the triune God involved. God, God's word, and God's spirit. And here we have the same three at Jesus' baptism. The Father, the Son, who is the word, and the spirit. Just as at the act of creation, the triune God was in control and involved in directing all things, so in the redemption of the world, the triune God is involved and active and directing all things. 
and it's begun with the arrival of the king. The divine king, equipped with the Father's love and the Spirit's power. And so it's quite a profound moment in telling us who Jesus is. But we also learn a bit about the kingdom that this king will bring in. Notice in verses 12 to 13, that after being baptised, immediately, Mark tells us, he likes that word immediately, he'll use it a lot, he's led into the desert to be tempted by Satan. And it's important to note here, it's not just a random detour. There's an intentionality in Jesus going to be tempted. And once again, we see a deliberate link with God's people in the Old Testament. After being led through the waters of the Sea of Reeds, what happens next is they face temptation for 40 years in the wilderness. And so Jesus, coming to the waters of Jordan, faces 40 days of temptation. Will he be obedient or will he, be, will he grumble and be disobedient like God's people? Well, the test is there for us and we see that unlike God's people who failed when tempted, Jesus remains obedient, proving his identity. But secondly, this this temptation shows us that this king has an enemy. Uh, The enemy is not Caesar, by the way. He's not tempted by Caesar. It's a much more serious problem. It is sin and evil and death. It is a spiritual battle that he faces. And it's important for us, particularly in our Western, overtly materialistic culture, to know that Satan is real. That it's not a myth. The spiritual realm is real. Our brothers and sisters who live in other cultures are much more aware of this. We are often so blind to this reality. Satan is real. There are real forces of evil who are complex and powerful and intelligent and Satan is the leader of those forces. And the Christian walk is not one of happily skipping through the meadow. We are told to put on the what of God? The armour of God, but we want to put on the pyjamas of God. That's, That's our Western mindset, comfort, right? The onesie of God. That's, we laugh, but that's sadly what we do. We forget we're in a battle. Then in verses 14 and 15, Jesus actually speaks his first words in Mark's gospel. It's the first time he speaks and he proclaims his mission statement. This is why the king has come. This is how he's going to establish his kingdom. And it is his gospel that brings great joy and announcement After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, repent, uh, sorry, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That's the verse we have, uh, if you notice coming into church this morning. 
Why has the kingdom of God come near? That is, it's about to happen. Well, because God's king is here. As the king comes, so does the kingdom. Therefore, Jesus says, it's time to repent and believe this news. That, that word repent, it literally means to reverse course, to do a 180 degree turn, to turn away from something. And as we'll see as we go through in Mark's gospel, it's to turn away from the things that Christ Jesus hates, that is sin, and turn towards the things that he loves, to trust the news that Jesus brings. And that little believe word, which is the same word as have faith or trust, the, the original word captures all of those things. It's not just intellectual assent, it's intellectual assent and trusting and, and basing your life on it. It what makes Christianity so radically different from all other religions, including no religion. The essence of religion is good advice. Do these things, live this way, pray these prayers, and you will win God's favour and blessing. You will live forever, you will have the fulfilled life, whatever the religious view is. But Jesus' gospel radically says, guess what? It's not what you do. Jesus says, I have lived and died for you. I have restored the relationship with God for you. You can't do it, but I will, and I have. And as we'll see as we go through Mark, once again, Mark, uh, uh, John, uh, sorry, get, we'll get that right there, Jesus, we'll get the, the order correct eventually. Jesus makes it clear again and again that the reason he has come is to give his life as a ransom for many. He reminds us that our relationships are meant to be perfect with our Creator and with each other, but they're not because of the horrible sadness of human sin and failing. And this King will end up giving His life to redeem His people. We take His crown as King, we want His position, and instead He wears a crown of thorns. This is where this King will end up. And when we become our own centre, when we seek to become our own kings, not only does everything fall apart because we're so ill-equipped for it, but we face death and God's judgement. And so we are reminded that we need a true king to restore us and make everything right. And this is the proclamation right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. We know how it ends, by the way, well, most of us will. But this king will exchange a, king of, a crown of gold for a crown of thorns. And that leaves us with a call. How do we respond to this king, the Lord Jesus Christ? How will you respond to this grand announcement? This life-changing news this king who will give his life, as we shall see, for you. And we shall see the call is about not following advice, but following a king.
verses 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who, by the way, later on will get a name change to Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the lake. And I like how it says this, for they were fishermen. Is that why they're doing it? I have no idea. Thanks, Thanks Mark. Uh, then Jesus says, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, at once, they left their nets and followed him. Then Jesus goes a little further along and he sees James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. doesn't say because they were fishermen, we've kind of worked that out by now, right? Without delay, he called them and they, uh, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed Jesus. This is a very profound moment. Notice, firstly, Jesus is calling, by the way, just ordinary people. Traditionally, um, uh, rabbis would go around as, as kind of teachers and leaders, and people would choose who they follow. And a bit like social media, you can choose who you follow. Very rarely, a, a rabbi wouldn't say, right, you should follow me, and you should follow me. And, no, you would choose based on your popularity and your teaching who you want to follow. But such is Jesus' authority that he then chooses people instead. No, you're going to follow me. Now, one of my favourite most recent movies is Top Gun Maverick and Top Gun, the original, OG. Uh, and they pick the best of the best fighter pilot names and, of course, afterwards, I feel like we all need call signs. That's kind of, you get, you get involved, invested. And they're always the best, the best of the best. And what you notice is there's no evidence that Jesus is forming a Top Gun Academy for discipleship. He doesn't sort of say, look, I've scanned modern Palestine and you are the noblest and best examples that I could find. You're going to become my top gun disciples. Follow me. As we read through the Gospels, what we see is actually they are very human. They're broken. They're confused. Uh, at times, they're embarrassingly incompetent. They fall asleep at the wrong time. They do the wrong thing. Jesus calls one of them Satan. It's generally not what you call a positive uh, career advice. But it's your annual review. Sorry, Peter, not doing great. In other words, these are very ordinary people that Jesus calls to follow him. And secondly, notice how all-encompassing Jesus' call is on these ordinary people. He tells Simon and Andrew to follow him, and immediately they do so. They, they do the net drop moment. They didn't have mics back then, so they had to drop their nets. James and John leave their father and hired hands. Now, uh, if you're from a culture which actually honours your parents, you will know how outrageous what they just did is. If you're from a more Western culture, like, oh, I left my parents, yeah, that's no biggie. To leave your mother and father, particularly your father, just like that, is deeply disrespectful. This is the family business. It's not just something they're doing. It's part of their family business. You would get your identity from particularly your father. 
It's a very patriarchal society. Respecting and honouring your parents is huge. An extreme sport is occasionally just obeying your mother. That's an extreme sport in first century Palestine. Yet what do these men do? They radically leave their mother and father. Jesus is saying, I want you to make me even more important than the most important people in your life. That is a huge, huge call. Uh, Because I think we're happy often to say, look, I'll follow Jesus. He's in the top three, or maybe four, of things that are important in my life. When my career is genuinely established and I've, I've kind of got it worked out, when my health is good or when when the kids leave home or when I finish my degree or when I've sorted out my retirement plans, then then I'll work out where Jesus fits into the picture. But Jesus radically says, I want priority over your work and your family and your financial security and your health and your retirement. Uh, It's not as though those things are unimportant. No, they're really important. He's saying, but I'm more important. Jesus is teaching us here that following him is clearly the most important thing we are called to do. Now, when we go on holidays, uh, we like to bring things, as you do, suitcases and bikes and all those kind of things. And uh, before we had our big party bus car, which is great, we had just a normal uh, Subaru station wagon. And I would look at the amount of stuff that we as a family had decided to bring and look at the boot and say, we've got a problem. The stuff sitting outside the car in no way is going to fit in the car. But my wife is a genius on many levels. One of the things she can do is turn, you know, 48 square metres, cubic metres of stuff into the back seat of a car. How does she do it? Well, she's super intelligent. And what she does is she says she starts with the big things first. The big suitcases put them in. Then you pack in the smaller suitcases and the green bag, and the green bags that you've just filled with games and cornflakes, just random stuff, but they fit in a green bag, so that in the green bags go. Then you've got the pillows and the dunas, and they're the ones that you fit around all the crevices and under there, and, and the boot closes. And I'm like, I married the right woman. <laughs> For many reasons, not less the packing of the boot. And what that means, what that teaches us is get Get the most important things in first. And often we, we kind of treat Jesus like we treat the doona and the pillows at the end of packing the, the kind of boot, right? Yes, Jesus is in my life. I've managed to fit him in, right? He can fit around my career and around my work and around my, my kids' priorities and, and around my study and around my retirement plans. I've fitted him in. He's part of my life. But what Jesus is teaching us here is We are the doona, and he is the suitcase. He goes in first, and we shape our lives around him. It's not that our lives are unimportant. No, they're really important. In fact, we are actually called to thrive the best when Christ is at the center and we shape our lives around him, but too often it's the other way around. Jesus is in my life. That's great. Where is he in your life? Are you fitting him in 
or are you shaping your life around him? It is the second of those two things that we are called to do as followers of Christ. That is what it means to follow a king, a king, not a helper. So what would your life look like if Jesus was the center? How would that shape your work life or your study or your retirement or your family life or your financial life or your social life? How you use your time and money? The relationships that you are in? Because that is how we follow Christ. By putting him first. And thirdly, notice that Jesus calls his followers to be also committed to his mission. That is his mission of declaring the gospel, the good news. Jesus doesn't say, look, follow me and you will have a comfortable life. Follow me and I will make you wealthy beyond your richest dreams. He says, follow me and I will make you fish for The, the nature and cost of following Jesus is a challenge that we're faced with throughout Mark's gospel, as we'll see. And what we'll see is we're called not just to be receivers of grace and love, which we are, we're deeply loved, and receive the full richness of God's grace, but we're also called to be on the mission of grace and love. It's something we have to give away as well as receive. To share the gospel, to proclaim God's love, to show God's love in practical ways and caring for people. Jesus is saying, follow me, preach the gospel, be a fisher of people. Again, this is a call for all followers of Jesus. Some of us will be particularly equipped to be evangelists and they just can't help doing it. They, they kind of live and breathe and can't understand why everybody else isn't doing it all the time. That's, that's great. But we're all called to share the gospel in different ways because that is Jesus' mission. As followers of Jesus, we proclaim his mission we preach his kingdom we seek to bring his kingdom from uh, from heaven so to speak into our workplaces into our relationships into our retirement to show people what it looks like to follow Jesus and once again we are we we have this beautiful gift of the Holy Spirit which helps us do it so you are called to follow your king even if you are the most ordinary person, which is so encouraging for me, let me tell you. <laughs> you don't have to be Top Gun Maverick. We are called to put Christ at the center of all things, not to fit our lives, uh, sorry, not to fit Christ around our lives, but to fit our lives around Christ. And we are called with Christ to proclaim his kingdom with our words and with our actions.
So brothers and sisters, are you ready to follow your king? Let me pray that we would. Gracious Father, we thank you for the Gospel of Mark, which so simply and clearly helps us truly see who Jesus is. May you once again give us clarity to see Jesus as the promised King who will rescue his people, your divine Son who is worthy of worship and the one that we should follow with our whole lives and proclaim his kingdom with our words and actions. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit which enables us to do these things for your glory. Amen.